Hello, and welcome to The Pink Elephant. I'm your host, Cortez Sanchez, broadcasting from Radio Phoenix. I am the 2009 recipient of the Be There Change Award from the Washington Peace Center and a student of Arizona State University School of Social Transformation. As a part of my LGBT capstone project, I will be interviewing Rachel Kuntz, a board member of the ASU Student Club Devils in the Bedroom and also a student worker for ASU's Sexual Violence Prevention Department. Rachel shares their journey of sex ed while attending Arizona Public Schools in Flagstaff. Together, we will discuss the pink elephant in the room, sex education. As of 2016, only 24 states and the District of Columbia require that sex education be taught and fewer states require that um, the curriculum is medically accurate. Today, we will explore what that means. Hey, Rachel, how are you? Hi, Cortez. <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> feeling a little silly, feeling okay. a little jittery, but... So, Rachel is uh, my fellow board member of Devils in the Bedroom. So, Devils in the Bedroom is a paraprofessional student organization where we um, provide sex education and we work closely with the Sexual Violence Prevention Department on campus. Yeah, no, that sounds perfect. Um, we... Every week we have meetings where we talk about various sexual health topics, uh, things like STI testing, things like sex and disability, things like kink, um, and we just want to provide a space where people feel comfortable asking their questions that might not have been answered by sex education, and we want people to have a space to discuss these things, so really that's the type of environment we're trying to cultivate. So something that really interested me uh, before I had joined Devils in the Bedroom on the e-board was, um, you know, I went to a workshop that you had hosted that you had asked, uh, you were facilitating and you had put out a question to the group was like, what was the quality of sex education in your schools? And I was surprised about the answers that I received. So um, from what I understand, Rachel, you went to Arizona public schools? Did you go to school here in Arizona? I did. I went to school here in Arizona. I was going to public schools through middle school, and then I went to a public charter school, um, and I received sex education in Arizona, but not really because my sex education was close to non-existent, which when I asked that question in the Devils in the Bedroom meeting seemed to be pretty reflective of a lot of people's experience. Yeah, I even heard some people said that their sex education, if they received it, was very straight. So I know last year Arizona repealed their no promo homo law that was on the books since the early 1990s. Yeah, so the no promo homo law basically stated that um, you could not say anything to promote homosexuality or same-sex relationships in your sex education, which really limited a lot of people's sex education Um, Arizona does not require that sex ed be taught in schools, but they do require that if it is taught, that it has a focus on abstinence. And um, there's this misconception due to years of stereotyping that gay sex is inherently, you know, less pure, less um, okay, that, that queer people are more promiscuous. There's a lot that goes into that. Um, that went into the no promo homo law. It was recently repealed just last year. 
Um, so schools are able to talk about that, but it's important to note that just because they're now allowed to talk about that does not mean that all of a sudden people are getting queer inclusive sex education in schools because sex ed is still not required in Arizona and it still is um, required to have a focus on abstinence. So there's a long way to go with Arizona's sex ed and the repealing of no promo homo is a good first step, but it's not the end. Yeah, so thank you so much for sharing that. So um, there's three categories of sex education, um, the way that it's taught in school. So um, number one, um, some states have sex education that is not mandated by the states. Um, there's some states that require that sex education be taught and that it's medically accurate. And then there's other states that require that um, sex education is mandated but not required to be medically accurate. So for me, I went to public schools in Maryland where it was mandated but it wasn't required to be medically accurate and medically accurate also varies by state so medically accurate could mean that you know it's based on biology which could potentially be problematic because if we're focusing on biology we're not discussing gender mm-hmm. and medically accurate could also say peer reviewed resources so because um it's all over the place, and over half of the states in the United States don't have a um, don't require sex education. Like people are receiving a lot of misinformation. Yeah, definitely. And with the medically accurate thing, I'm glad that you bring up that we can't just say medically accurate and expect everyone to mean those same things because you know that can leave out conversations about consent. Um, You know, that's not something that you would learn about the biological side of sexuality and sex, but it's a really, really key part to learn about. Um, So I'm glad that you brought that up. And also, you know, the idea that sex ed could exist and not be medically accurate is just kind of disturbing overall, because could you imagine if science classes weren't required to be scientifically accurate or history classes weren't expected to be (laughs) historically accurate like that is just absolutely unacceptable but I think it needs to go beyond um, medically accurate and so what I say is that I want comprehensive sexual health education and what comprehensive means is that one it's medically accurate um, and all of those aspects of sexuality all of the biological aspects of sexuality are talked about but also the social aspects of sexuality are talked about and that consent is a conversation that people know how to talk about the nuances of that it's that sexuality is not expected to be one thing um and part of comprehension too i think is um age appropriateness so when i was in school receiving sex education um where where was that by the way where in arizona if you don't mind me asking flagstaff arizona flagstaff so northern arizona northern arizona yes i received sex education for the first time in school when I was 18 years old, I was a senior in high school, <laughs> and they brought... Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to laugh, but like that's, that's a little bit ridiculous. It's a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> and you know, I always say that there's no wrong time to learn, that it's never too late. That's why I teach sex ed to college students. Um, but it does seem irresponsible to start talking about sex ed when many students at that point were already sexually active um, and may have been for years. 
um, you know, 18 seniors in high schools are, are 17, 18. That is, you know, around the age that a lot of people start exploring their sexuality as teenagers. And so it was pretty messed up that up until then we hadn't received any information formally in schools. Um, so they brought all of the seniors into the room into a room together and they basically were like, all right, so y'all are about to go to college. And so we need you to know that um, one, you got to use condoms and two, don't rape people and all of that, which was really wonderful. I was glad that they talked about sexual violence, but it was that very basic um those very basic conversations and the educator that was there was clearly limited on what she could say because of various laws um, that exist in Arizona. And so it was definitely, um, I thought it was pretty ridiculous that this was the first conversation we had. Um, It lasted an hour a day for two days. So we were basically 17, 18 year olds about to go off to college Um, And this was the only conversation we had had. And of course, people may have had conversations with their parents or had conversations with um, like in other schools, but not necessarily. Not everyone had. And if that's your first and only education, how do you expect people to go into those experiences feeling equipped to handle them? I'm probably telling my age, but like we probably dedicate more time to learning cursive than what you've received in learning sex education, which is very sad. Me too. And I was probably one of the last (laughs) age groups to learn cursive. (laughs) Yeah, it is pretty sad. And I just realized that my story was not abnormal, that I was, you know, I had never received sex education in any schooling before then. Um, my parents had some conversations with me, but definitely not. I didn't get the bulk of my sex education from anyone in my life or any trusted adults. I got the bulk of my sex education on the internet. And the internet can be a great resource, but it can also be a place where a lot of inf- misinformation can be spread. Um, pornography is a source of information for a lot of people. And um, one of my favorite things that you've told me that you've heard is that um learning about sex from pornography is kind of like learning to drive from a high-speed police trace <laughs> yeah i actually learned about that from going to catalyst con where it was a a, a conference with a bunch of sex ed- educators across the country so i thought that was very interesting but um i did so based on the conversation from the workshop you did um when you had asked um where people receive um sex education that inspired me to do this sex ed mapping project where I kind of put a survey out there to ASU students and people from around the country and local organizations about what their experience was in sex education. And, you know, I've heard a lot of the things that you shared today, such as they learned from doing. So, like, someone had – all the responses are anonymous, by the way, and they voluntarily gave their answers um, to be shared. But someone said they learned by having sex at age 14 or – they learn from, you know, trial and error, and they learn from porn and bars and bookstores and the internet. Yeah, and again, some of those resources were probably completely fine. Some of them may have, like, learning from sex ed, learning sex ed from the internet or even from 
trial and error is not always a bad thing. I mean, a lot of us learn about our sexuality by trying new things and seeing how we like them. Or or it could potentially send you to the ER. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing is it's like it can be fine. It, it absolutely can be. But when we don't have, you know, trusted places where people can go to at any age with their questions, um, then we leave up a lot of potential because learning for, about sex ed from the internet could be, I went on Planned Parenthood's website and learned about these STIs and that information is probably, um, you know, very trustworthy and could probably get you a lot, but it could also mean learning about it from internet pornography, which is not what we want. So really just not having these formalized systems in schools and everybody's families have different dynamics, have different levels of trust within the family, have different levels of information, you know. There are plenty of parents who I'm sure would love to teach their kids um, sex ed, but if they didn't receive good sex ed, then how are they supposed to do that? And, you know, we don't expect parents to teach children, you know, math and science and all of that. And um, I really do think that sexuality is is the same way that I hope that people are having conversations with their parents or with other trusted adults in their lives, other members of their family. But the fact of the matter is that not everyone can have those conversations. Not everyone wants to have those conversations. Their parents or their or their family members, their guardians may not be trusted adults in their lives. And so I think having those resources in the educational system and starting from a young age um, is really important. Uh, a lot of the times I talk about, you know, age-appropriate sex education should start at a very young age and people are like, well, five-year-olds don't need to be learning about sex. And I'm like, well, of course, five-year-olds don't need to be learning about things like kink or BDSM or, or even all the mechanics of sex, but five-year-olds should be learning about, hey, this is what your bodies do. This is um, this is what this is. Um, these are the proper terms for it, as well as these are the conversations that you can have if somebody touches you in a way that you don't like. These are the ways that you can tell a trusted adult if you feel concerned about the way an adult is interacting with your body or another child is interacting with your body. These are This is the language that you have so that people have those tools this is how you clean yourself. Like all of those conversations are conversations that we should be having with young people. And then if we start having those conversations at that really young age, then we can build on those conversations as kids get older so that they don't have to learn it all in two hours when they're 18 years old, you know? You, you know what? So so my I have very young parents. So, so the education I received was don't get anybody pregnant, which does not apply in my situation in most cases. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then I I remember I was taught that boys don't kiss boys. So like we had a, a family friend like kiss me on the cheek and like I was freaking out because I didn't know what to do because I was told that that was terrible. And that was at my church. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I, I just like froze. Yeah, absolutely. And if you had had language, if you had been explained about like different relationships or had language to talk about, hey, um, I would actually prefer that you not kiss me on the cheek, things like that, then you maybe could have avoided that. I definitely had a lot of 
shame growing up about I identify as bisexual and um, I, you know, date people of all genders, but I definitely had a lot of shame about my attraction and really did think that because I was attracted to boys and men that uh, when I was a kid, you know, I, I thought that because I had that attraction that that canceled out my attraction to women, um, that that because I was attracted to, because I had crushes on boys in my class, that that canceled out my attraction to like, you know, having a crush on my fifth grade teacher. Shout out to Mrs. Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> I can't with you. Shut the front door, the back door, and the side door because I can't. Mrs. Macbeth, if you're out there, if you're listening to this, I was so in love with you. <sighs> oh my goodness, I'm fanning myself. <laughs> I, yeah, I was so in love with Mrs. Macbeth, and I was like, this is fine, because I also have a crush on this boy in my class. You you know what? That brings up another idea I have in mind. Like, where did you learn about healthy relationships? Because I grew up watching romantic comedies, which, going back and watching a lot of older movies that I watched growing up, they're a little bit problematic. And, like, even, like, cartoons like Johnny Bravo, like, that's very rapey. Oh, absolutely. I was also growing up, you know, with the media that often is promoting unhealthy behaviors, rape culture, things like that. Um, my mom worked for a domestic violence shelter um, for um, some time while I was growing up. And so a lot of the initial conversations that I was having were with my mom about her work. And that was really helpful. That was was really great. Um, because I think I was aware of, you know, the fact that relationships could be abusive, that just because someone says they love you does not mean that they have the right to treat you certain ways. Um, and, and I did get to have a lot of honest conversations with my mom about stereotypes that people have. Um, we, I remember we were driving home in the car once and we talked about, we had a really long conversation. I was probably like 13 or 14 and had a conversation about you know when people say oh why didn't this person just leave if this relationship was abusive and we had a really good nuanced conversation about how there are a million and one reasons that someone might not just leave and 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 what that looks like and how you can support people so that was really great I would say the only problem with that though is that I was learning a lot about the signs of like a bad relationship and kind of learning about like the worst of the worst um but I wasn't because people who are coming into domestic violence shelters are often, you know, very um, like they like their situations have gotten to a point that they've that they've left and gone to a shelter. They're often more extreme cases, not always, but they're often like more extreme cases of extreme physical violence, things like that. And so I wasn't necessarily even though I was learning about that, I wasn't necessarily learning about the more subtle ways that abuse can happen. And I wasn't necessarily learning about, okay, well, if this is what a bad relationship or an unhealthy relationship looks like, what does a good, healthy relationship look like? Um, and so a lot of that I ended up learning really when I got to college and started working for the Sexual and Relationship Violence Prevention Program at ASU. Um, I have learned so much through that and just through having conversations with my coworkers and people and educating others. Um, and it's always been a learning process. Thank you so much for sharing that. I noticed that, um, well, even for me as a 
eboard member of Devils in the Bedroom. I know when I've come into your workshops, I've learned from Lenny and Gabby and some of the other um, people within our group. Like I'm learning as I'm presenting. So I remember one time um, Lenny had said she was hosting a workshop and I forgot what the topic was, but she said, someone asked the question, she's like, oh, you and your body can decide what works best for you. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like that just seemed like it was very, yeah. I, I can't think of the word, so I made sound just effects. Mind blowing. <laughs> yes. Mind blowing. You get me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, sometimes people ask me questions in my workshops and I go, huh, like I did all this research on this topic and I've never thought about that, you know? Um, and there are so many places where I have privilege of not having to think about certain things. And so it's really nice to get to teach people because not only are you teaching other people, but you're often learning from your fellow presenters or from the audience um, who are bringing up questions that you might not have even known you had to ask. Yeah like outside of school like I had learned about consent from going to cuddle party which that's awesome can you talk about the cuddle party now I'm asking you the questions oh get it <laughs> yes yeah, so cuddle party is a uh it's a safe space for adults who want to experience touch it's a basically a consent workshop so basically you're not required to do anything at a cuddle party um, it's all anonymous um, it's usually um, at somebody's home who's a trained cuddle party facilitator but what I found awesome about it is um, the facilitator like facilitates the space. So um, like if you're a caretaker, you can kind of take the day off. Like you're not required to do anything in the cuddle party. You could just come and observe. Um, if you want to just come in the space and practice saying no, you're able to do that. Um, and then if someone asks, can they rub your shoulder, they're not moving down your back and arm and v your neck, various parts of your body without um, asking can they move further and it's a non-sexual event um, just to kind of keep that safe space so um, it's okay for people to feel aroused in the space but for the purpose of the event you're not supposed to act on it yeah I think that is so awesome I think that would be awesome for people who maybe haven't had a chance to build that life skill in their real life um, and one thing that you have told me from that you learned from the cuddle party that has stuck with me since the first time you said it, and I have told so many people this, but it's that no is helpful information. And so if I ask you, um, you know, where is the Southwest Center for HIV AIDS? Is it that way? And you go, no, it's actually that way. That helped me out. You didn't hurt my feelings. You didn't hurt me by saying no. You told me something that I needed to know. And it's the same way with sexual consent or consent to touch. If you say, hey, can I give you a hug? And I say, no, you can't give me a hug, but you can shake my hand or um, I would love to receive some words of affirmation. Then all of a sudden, you know how to interact with me in a way that respects me. And that also helps you because you don't want to be hugging me if I don't want to be hugged or if I'm going to freak out when you hug me, right? Like, yeah, yeah, and just because you said yes to a hug yesterday, it doesn't mean that I'm just going to be hugging you <laughs> whenever I feel whenever, like it all the time. Yeah, exactly. I remember we did one of our first presentations together. Do you remember we did the... Um, you had like a coffee or like a drink or something. One of us had a drink and we we 
showed examples of consent by passing that drink back and forth and uh it was like a coffee or like an iced tea or something like that Mm. and you know saying things like oh you know if i ask cortez can i have a drink of your iced tea or whatever it was and cortez says well no i'm actually sick right now that's helpful information. I don't want to get sick, you know, things like that. Yeah. Or, or or maybe I have a policy where I don't share my coffee because ill. Absolutely. <laughs> like there's just so many things. And no matter why you're saying no, you know, I think sometimes people who are people pleasers or just like don't want to hurt people's feelings feel like that no is going to to be harmful to that other person and that that prevents them from saying no. But in reality, no matter the reason you're saying no, that person is helped by your no. That person is able to interact with you more respectfully. They're able to maybe know in the future if you say, hey, no, I have a policy that I don't share my drinks with people because you, then I'll go, <laughs> okay, well, if I need a drink, I know not to ask Cortez for one, <laughs> you know? And that is and that is helpful to me. It might hurt my feelings in the moment. Like, rejection can feel bad if I ask you for a hug and you say no then yeah that might not feel the best but ultimately what that's going to do is it's going to let me know okay when I need support from this person I need to ask for this instead of this um and that is just really ultimately like reframing that has has really changed the way I feel about my people pleasing tendencies Yes, something that really stuck out to me about like my cuddle party experiences um, is that when someone says no to something, they're actually saying a yes to a a piece of themselves. So, for example, if, you know, I have this thing where I don't want to share my coffee with people because that's my boundary, like I'm saying yes to myself. And that can also apply to other um, situations that's not related to sexuality. So, like, let's say. You know, we're students, we have like a lot of homework and like boss lady calls you up and you're like, hey, can you cover this shift? And I'm like, okay, well, I have homework. I had planned to have like four hours of relaxation time so I can kind of reset for the next day. You know, saying no is being respectful, you know, to myself to make sure that I can, you know, make self-care a priority so I don't burn myself out. So like instead of seeing that as rejection like i can you know celebrate that you know i i took charge of taking care of myself absolutely and i've also realized that when you take charge of setting your own boundaries taking care of yourself what you're doing is you're setting an example to every person you interact with that hey i'm a safe space if you need to set a boundary with me you know that when you are able to say no, I need to take care of myself, I'm not coming out tonight, you are able to tell that other person that, hey, if you don't want to come out, you're allowed to say no. And that can be so powerful because we're not always taught that we're allowed to say no. In fact, like no is often, often feels bad to say. Like think about if somebody invites you off out for coffee, think about how often you go, oh, I really don't want to go to coffee, but I can't just say no, I don't want to go to coffee. You got to go, I've got this thing to do and I I have this and you have to make up like you have to lie to people to just reject them for coffee. You you know, I think a lot of people say maybe when they mean to say no. And what people don't realize is the invitation for them to ask you the same question again. So like, yeah. Hey, how about that drink? Yeah, exactly. It's like you said, maybe. And sometimes maybe you really mean maybe. And that's okay to to say maybe. But I think it's it's good to practice saying things like 
maybe ask me again tomorrow or you know maybe let me tell you how i feel after i check my calendar um let me do some research on this and then we can talk about it again so when you say maybe think about one do i actually want to say no and if you actually want to say no try saying no and two if you um if you really do mean maybe what does that maybe mean for you does that mean Maybe after I do some research on my own, maybe after I finish my homework, like what does that mean for you? And try setting that boundary like more explicitly so that people, you know, don't have to wonder like, okay, can I ask them again? Or or did they really mean no? I think that stigma is at the root of a lot of the problems with sex education, just that people don't feel comfortable even talking about it and if you don't feel comfortable talking about it how can you possibly teach about it if you don't feel comfortable talking about it how can you possibly know what questions you're supposed to be asking well cortez thank you so much for for having me on and talking oh my goodness thank you so much for coming thank you for tuning in to the pink elephant on radio phoenix i'm your host cortez sanchez and i could be found at cortezfranksanchez.com or at the Cortez on Instagram. Earlier, Rachel, my friend and advocate for sexual violence prevention, shared her story of sex ed being one day of her senior high school experience. We shared how we as a community could make sex education inclusive, LGBTQ friendly, with sexual violence prevention in mind. Thank you again and have a nice day.